You're listening to The Worship Review, a podcast which evaluates contemporary Christian music for the good of the church to the glory of God. This podcast is for the whole church to encourage thoughtful engagement with the words, emotions, and ideas in our music. We hope you enjoy this week's episode. Hello and welcome back to The Worship Review, the Christian podcast which evaluates music being sung in the church in a way that is both thoughtful and charitable. My name is Tyler. I'm a linguist and one of the co-hosts of this podcast, joined as ever by my friend and co-host, Colin. I'm Colin. I am a history professor and a former worship leader. And to those of you new to this show, the way this works is we will... Uh, agree in advance upon a song to be analyzed. We will do research independent of one another about the song in question. We will meet and the reactions and experiences that uh, we have in reviewing the song together are all therefore genuine because we don't confer about what we're going to say. And spontaneous. And all jokes are spontaneous as well. So, Which is, is why most of them are not funny. Yeah. <laughs> That's it, exactly. (laughs) And we have criteria on which we evaluate songs so that there's a sense of objectivity, but we don't pretend to be purely objective. We're quite subjective in some ways, and we have tastes and things like that. But what we're mostly looking for is whether, well, before we get to weathers, what we're looking for primarily is a clear definition of what is happening in a song, both in terms of theological content and also emotional content and other passions. And then we will try as amateurs in yeah. some ways to to compare what is expressed in the song with what is available to us in scripture. And so in that sense, what we're doing is evaluating these songs really. Yeah. Um, and we hope it's a benefit to you as the listener, whether you are a pastor or a worship leader or a layman or just a really, really curious person. Yeah. We hope this is edifying and uh, insightful in some ways. Yep, for sure. Today we're taking a look at a uh, traditional hymn that has been uh, redone and revamped in several ways called Great is Thy Faithfulness by Austin Stone Worship. Colin, what would you say by way of introduction to the song? Just give us some background on either the text or the author. Yeah, so this is a song which initially came out in 1923 by Thomas O. Chrisome, who was a Methodist. And this will be slightly important, not crucially important, but slightly important later. Now, the fascinating thing about this song is... It was done recently at a, what, Together for the Gospel conference? Gospel Coalition? Gospel Coalition? I can't remember. One of those acronyms. I thought it was TGC. Okay. Well, that's Together. Oh, no, that's the Gospel Coalition. Yeah. Uh, So, it was done at a Gospel Coalition conference, women's conference, in 2018. And it was... It was there was a surprise 
because the song was done with some additional verses and some omitted verses, and we will discuss that. And that's the version that we're going to be reviewing is this newish version. And you know, this the the new words were a were a hit supposedly, and there was spontaneous interest in these new words. And lo and behold, we find out that John Piper, the the famous, probably most famous New Calvinist, uh, New Calvinist pastor, at least the most famous one, that's who's not disgraced. Not been, yeah, yeah. I was just thinking point. the same thing. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> he he who shall remain nameless. And you can tell that John Piper wrote these words, yeah. or at least that someone who is deeply convinced of the Reformed. Uh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, it's clearly got a Reformed bend to them, and that's why I had said that it's fascinating that the original is written by a Methodist because they do not hold to the same view of election, for example, that John Piper holds. And so you could make the argument that this song is written by a person who had a totally different view of, of salvation. Not, not, not necessarily, we're not making comments about um, heresy or anything like that. I mean, I think most people can and would and probably should, in my view, say that whether you're an Armenian Wesleyan or whether you're Reformed or a New Calvinist or a Calvinist or whatever, these are not views that should cause people to call one another non-Christians. Yeah, they wouldn't place you outside of the yeah. fold of God. Yeah, I think they would, you know, all of these views would still put you in orthodox Christendom, for sure. Yeah, and even some attempts to reconcile them, like Molinism, for example, would no. be, you know, it's not... Um, it's at at most it's heterodox, but yeah. not heretical. Yeah, and I think both sides would say maybe the other side is an error, certainly, and and I think both sides could make the argument that there should be some differences in ecclesiology that would result from this, and differences in a variety, you know, the sacraments and other things. But everybody should be able to call themselves call each other Christians. So it's certain. I mean, you could tell that it was written by uh, a, a Calvinist just by reading the text. But then there's also a few dead giveaways that Piper wrote it as well, because oh, yeah. there's some emphasis on desire, yes. right? Like that book. Pleasure. Yeah. my Pleasure, excuse me. Yeah. So it makes you think of desiring God. I had a couple more things to say about uh, Chisholm. Oh, okay, yeah. So he was from Kentucky. He oh, was okay. initially a farmer um, and then a school teacher. That's right. He was sort of an unremarkable man in many respects in that he didn't, was not like some, he didn't it, come from money or yeah, something. Yeah. Like and that. he wasn't necessarily like a, a full-time minister even. No, he, he was a minister for one year and then yeah. retired due to, um, his health, yeah. health reasons. And then at the end of his life, he was an insurance salesman. So wow. he, he, he ran the gamut of kind of, I guess careers in general in 1923. I mean, you, yeah. you were a farmer and then a teacher and then a minister and then an insurance salesman and a newspaper editor and, of course, a hymn writer as well. And I found an excerpt. I, I did not look at the letter itself, so this is a this is not a primary source that I'm talking yeah. about here, but I found someone who reported something from one of his letters, and they said, these are his words, I have sought to be true to the word and to avoid flippant and catchy titles and treatment. I have greatly desired that each hymn or poem might have some definite message to the hearts for whom it was written. 
So a guy who was very concerned with having scripture permeate the songs that he wrote. It doesn't sound like he would have been fun at parties necessarily, but <laughs> a guy who, whose um, concern was for, not for um, wild passions or what he calls uh, flippant and catchy titles, but really scripture. And, and that's very clear in this song as well as in some other things that he wrote, like mm. he was wounded for our transgressions. Maybe you've heard that him before Colin, maybe some of the listeners have too. So um, that's a little bit of background about the song. Did you have anything else you wanted yeah, to say? Yeah, I would just, I, you know, actually getting into the song itself, just kind of summarizing, it's about a worshiper who praises God's faithfulness in a variety of ways. God doesn't change. God is a source of constant joy. God is a source of constant peace. God has part in sin and is always present with the worshiper. Mm-hmm. So pretty pretty clear message, and I'd say that that's true in this modern version that's sort of half written by John Piper. Yes. And it really is sort of half written because he took out one of the three verses yeah. and then added two of his own. So yeah. we're so, left with a refrain and two verses by the original author and then two verses by Johnny P. So, Colin, uh, let's look at verse one then. Great is thy faithfulness, O God, my Father. There is no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changest not. Thy compassions, they fail not. As thou hast been, thou forever wilt be. First thing I'd like to say is that this is the way that most people know this song, Great is thy faithfulness, O God, my Father. There is a variant that is the New Century Hymnal of the United Church of Christ, which says, O God, Creator. They use a kind of neutral, gender-neutral term, and uh, but most say, "Oh God, my Father, there is no shadow of turning with Thee." And this very much echoes James chapter one, verse seventeen: "Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow." of turning, or shadow due to change, or however you want it, depending on the, the way that it's translated. So this is lifted pretty closely from, from this text. The th- then I like what this verse does with that. So it says that God doesn't change, which is something that is sort of, I don't know if we want to call it natural, but it's something that is just in God's being. This is not necessarily a moral statement about God, that he doesn't change. I mean, because, for example, if God were if God were morally bad and he didn't change, like that not changing wouldn't necessarily be a good. My point is, is this is merely a kind of instrumental aspect of God's nature. But what I love about what this verse does is it takes this instrumental or kind of neutral aspect of God's nature and uses it to say something then about his moral character. So there is no shadow of turning with turning with thee. Thou changest not. Thy compassions, uh, they fail not. So because God doesn't change and because God is good, God is compassionate, God is merciful, that means that God's mercies and his compassions don't change either. 
So it's a neat way to move from just something that's kind of naturally or neutrally true about God to say something about his goodness. Yes, it's a really elegant structure, isn't it? Mm-hmm. I mean, you open with this statement, and then you, in order to give it definition, you don't go to a textbook definition, and you don't, you know, you don't, or go to a metaphor, it. right? Instead, yeah. you give clarifying um, statements that cast the initial statement in a in a sharper light, or yeah. in a in a more clearer way. And these are from scripture. Yes, I actually wanted to talk about the compassions, right? Sure. This is a little bit perplexing to us, right? Because, first of all, compassion in modern contemporary English is not a countable noun, right? You don't have one compassion, two compassions, three compassions. Um, You just speak of someone's compassion. And the second perplexing thing about this is that um, compassions aren't said to fail, right? So it doesn't make sense to say in modern contemporary English, oh, yes— my compassion for this child has failed or something like that. It doesn't really make sense. But as you said, these are all lifted directly from Scripture and from an earlier, uh, not an earlier translation, but no, it is an earlier translation, Um, but from a translation uh, that is less popular now. So these might sound more uh, obscure to the modern listener than they did to the listeners at the time. At the time, I think, most of the listeners would have remembered oh, yeah. reading about this. So, yeah. um, Lamentations chapter three, full of all of these reasons why someone would lose faith, mm-hmm. this chapter. But then in verses 22 to 24, I'll read the uh, King James version. And then maybe if it's all right, I'll read the English standard version as sure. well. So the King James version of this is, it is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, saith my soul. Therefore will I hope in him. And in the modern text, or by modern text, I mean in the English Standard Version, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. Mm. So, again, this description of God is not uh, an an artifice or an invention of the hymn writer or metaphor that he's come up with, but actually uh, some scripture that he presumably has meditated on and desired to put into uh, a hymn for, for the people of God to praise God with. And this quite elegantly, I think. Yeah. Then we will come to the refrain that uh, is sung after every single verse. Great is thy faithfulness. Great is thy faithfulness. Morning by morning, new mercies I see. All I have needed, thy hand hath provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. Mm. Yeah, it's a nice reference to Philippians chapter 4, verse 19. My God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. It also reminds us of words of Christ, uh, reminding us that, you know, even the sparrows 
you know, have what they need and the lilies of the field are clothed, right? This idea that trusting in God is a good thing to do because God is always faithful to us. And anything that we actually need, he will give us. Like we do not lack anything that we need. And so I think it's, this song is working, this refrain is working on two levels. It's working on the idea that our daily bread, so long as it is God's will that we have it, we have it and we get to enjoy it. But it is also the case that um, our daily lives, whether we have abundance or whether we have very little in terms of our physical needs, we can always be grateful for God's mercy mm-hmm. in Christ. Yeah, and again, this refrain is reminding us of some of the things that uh, were in Lamentations, right? His mercies are new every morning. And yeah. uh, you can see that even with the sunrise itself, what a mercy to us to see the sun come over the horizon in the morning and yeah. know, you know, God has ordained this day to come about and to come about in such a beautiful and glorious way yeah. for the sun to give light to the people, to, for God to send clouds, for rain to accumulate and yeah. provide us with sustenance. And as you said, um, every time we sin in this life, um, we we have earned a, another death sentence, if yeah, you would. Right. Um, and it is a mercy to us continually that we will not pay that penalty because Christ already has. Absolutely, yeah. Then we come to the second verse. Uh, isn't this how it goes, Colin? Summer and winter and springtime? <laughs> that's <laughs> how harvest. I have always known it. <laughs> but no, <laughs> suddenly uh, suddenly that's gone. No? no? What no. happened, Colin? It disappeared What's somehow. What's the second verse? Yeah, the second verse is now, I could not love thee. Oh, me? <laughs> Sorry, just kidding. I could not love thee so blind and unfeeling. Covenant promises fell not to me. Then, without warning, desire, or deserving, I found my treasure, my pleasure, in thee. You would expect John Piper or a new Calvinist to say, God found you, right? But what it says, in fact, is that you found God. Mm -hmm. So now again, this is clarified later. Verse 3 clarifies that the, the more new Calvinist perspective that God does the finding. But here we've got something more along the lines of Ephesians chapter 2, verses 12. Remember that you were at that time, this is prior to conversion, separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. So, this is pretty similar to that. We have the language of being outside the covenant. And blindness, of course, is a common euphemism for sin in Scripture. Being unfeeling is an interesting one, because if you pair it, again, if you're just thinking about this verse, it's a little bit 
strange. Again, the rest of the song helps fill this out. But just in this verse, we have the person is unfeeling, and then what they find is their treasure and their pleasure in God. So there is a sense of, a little bit of a sense of felt needs in here, that the problem is that a person isn't feeling enough, and then what they find is a feeling of pleasure. Now, again, once you know that John Piper wrote this, those words, like especially the word pleasure, brings up his book and mm-hmm. his uh, idea of Christian hedonism, that we we can and should enjoy a kind of radical pleasure and indulgence in dwelling upon, ruminating on God's goodness to us, and that this brings him ultimate glory. Mm-hmm. Like we we are actually doing a good thing when we just enjoy, um, really just savor and taste and experience and roll around in God's love, and and you know that that maybe is a whole other discussion as to kind of the the kind of description of Christian hedonism and the kind of discussion of that. But all I'm saying is you can see that in this verse. Yeah. Pretty well. And he, if I'm not mistaken, it's been a while since I read his book, but he grounds this in a kind of alternative reading of the first question of the Westminster yeah. Catechism, right? So, right. what is the chief end of man to glorify God and enjoy him forever is the, you know, That's the original answer. And then yeah. he, so, he connects those two ideas and says, oh, no, we, we glorify God by enjoying him just finding our joy in him is glorifying him um and we'll see that again in a in a later verse as well i wondered because feeling uh has this double meaning in english where there's as you mentioned kind of an emotional um aspect to feeling i feel angry i feel sad it's kind Mm -hmm. of a psychological feeling i wondered if in this verse so blind and unfeeling if this is actually meant to be uh, more closely related to an inability to perceive with our senses. Like because, almost gr- groping in the dark. Yeah. Right. Or, yeah, blind and numb might be another yeah. way of putting this. Um, because yeah, in my first reading of this, I actually thought I could not love these so blind and unfeeling, aside from being somewhat ambiguous um, in that this um, so blinded unfeeling could modify either of the two nouns that preceded it. In fact, it, if you were just looking at it structurally, you would say it modifies the closest one, which would be V, which would be wrong. Um, th- I'm not saying that this is what it's saying. I'm just saying oh, I it's see what open you mean. to yes, interpretation. That's true. Like, that's true. you were reprehensible to me. You were blind and unfeeling, and yes. I cannot love you. That's just, obviously not right. what he's but saying. But just based on the grammar, yes. it, does, it, it could modify... I could not love the, basically, you were so blind and unfeeling. Right. That's, of course, not what it says, but you're right, the grammar. But once you're willing to overlook that, then you have to ask yourself- Which you should be, because that's pedantic, right? Well, Well, yes, it's pedantic, pedantic it's nitpicky. But (laughs) for our listeners, they're like, man, I hate it when they do this. (laughs) Why is Tyler doing (laughs) this again? Can can we fast forward to when he's done? But when when you overlook that, um, and you come with- these two ideas that initially don't seem to follow from one another. Yeah. I could not love thee and I was blind and unfeeling. Now where, 
what is it about those two ideas that is connected um, logically? Because let's just say in an abstract theoretical sense, I'm blind and I'm unfeeling. Can I then not love people? It seems like the real issue is that um, there is some knowledge that I that I can't get access to because I'm mm. unable to perceive the world around me. Mm-hmm. Um, this is not, to me, the same thing as saying I was dead in my trespasses. Yeah. It's similar to right. that, but it's not the same thing. It's not the same thing as saying um, I was, um, you know, in love with myself or my sin yeah. or um, something like that. It seems to be saying I was incapable not just of perceiving the world around me, but of loving God. And yeah. I think that that's true. It absolutely is true. the non-believer. Yeah, of course. Um, but it just requires some unpacking. Yes, and it's ironic that you mention, you reference a different part of Ephesians chapter 2 when you're saying, then we were dead in our trespasses and sin. Because, of course, where part of this is, like like Piper is clearly borrowing from Ephesians chapter, tw- uh, chapter 2, verse 12 here. But it's interesting that he chose not to rest on the qualifier in Ephesians, which is we were dead. That's part of why we were separated from Christ and alienated from the commonwealth. We were, we were dead. Mm-hmm. Whereas, and Piper knows this. Of course, I've, I've heard him preach on Ephesians chapter 2. He's very he's really good on, on this t- issue. But he chose in this song to not talk about deadness. It was rather blindness and unfeeling. So again, perfectly biblical, maybe not quite as strong. Sure. But it this seems to lend itself a bit more to Piper's own flavor. Yeah. Right? Of sort of, again, Christian hedonism. As does the second line here, yeah. too, right? Covenant promises fell not to me. Now, if you are not a neo-Calvinist or even maybe more broadly a Calvinist, you're going to say, what's a covenant promise? Right. And what does it mean for a default <laughs> to me, right? And... Uh, it, it's actually not unpacked in this song exactly no, what's it meant. Now, we, we can infer, you know, let's just take a naive perspective on this and say, well, what, what is being said here? There's some promises that I did not have. Yeah. And by the end of this, I did have them. Yeah. And that included um, a relationship with the steadfast God whose mercies are new. That includes a um, pardon for sin, a pardon for a sin, peace, peace that yeah. endureth. Um, so those are the, broadly speaking, those are the covenant promises that we now um, can inherit. Um, and Colin, I also noticed what you mentioned earlier briefly in an aside, um, but I think it's actually bigger than mm-hmm. what you said. So um, the, there's a moment in this verse where there's a switch, there's a turn, right. there's there's a right. A then kind without of warning, desire, deser- uh, deserving. Then, without warning, desire, or deserving, I found my treasure, my pleasure in thee. So, here I am an agent, and the verb is finding, and suddenly, you know, without warning, I have found my pleasure in right. you. And so, um, I he may be recalling what it feels like to be a Christian who is yeah. suddenly converted, and then all of a sudden, um, you have this joy and pleasure and even desire for a relationship with God. But there's nothing here that says how that happened. Nope, there's no mention (laughs) of, you know, you would actually expect a Calvinist to say, then without warning, desire, or deserving, you gave your son to just ransom me or something like that. But that's not. No. It's it's different. Right. And that's why I found it so strange, because there's aspects of new Calvinism in here. So, for example, without desire, 
right? The idea that we don't even have the faith that we have is given to us. The, the we desi- did not desire it. Yeah, we didn't desire to believe. Like, you know, that's a very Calvinist approach to things. Yes. But they don't, there's, there's, or Piper does not put in here God's action. Which is ironic for something right. that's trying to talk about monergism, which yeah. I think is what he's getting right. at. Like, God is and the soul, monergism. Uh, it's actually a play on synergism from a Greek word, synergia, which is a compound, soon meaning together. And ergon meaning work. So working together, the idea of synergism would be you cooperate in some way with the mechanism of salvation and monergism, which is adopted by Calvinists and Lutherans and many reformed um, and reformed. I don't want to say reformed adjacent. That's going to sound really. really I don't know. You could say reformed dish, but Um, maybe that's not. I guess kind enough. of non-Wesleyan evangelicals, could yeah. you say? But also, yeah, non-Wesleyan, non-Armenian as well. Yeah. Because what Wesleyans, I think, would distinguish themselves a bit from Arminians. Sure. Re- Reformed people wouldn't. <laughs> Reformed people would be like, that's all Arminianism. <laughs> I think you said Armenian a moment ago. <laughs> yeah. But, um, yeah, so he's trying to present a, a monergistic view of salvation. So in contrast to synergism, Mono meaning one or soul or alone. Um, God is the sole agent in the salvation of the individual. The individual did not cooperate in any meaningful way at all um, and has suddenly, you know, like uh, rescuing someone from um, maybe, let's say, rescuing a helpless child from falling overboard on a boat. Now, did, did this child cooperate in being rescued from the water? Not in any real significant way. I mean, right. um, that's a very crude analogy right. for as monergism. opposed to, for example, an adult that falls over the boat and you reach down to save the adult and they then reach their hand up and grab hold and grab hold tight. of you and then you pull them up. Well, they did cooperate a little bit. Sure, right. Sure. So the ir- the irony in my mind is that in attempting to present a monergistic image of the salvation process. God as an agent is absent. Mm. Yeah. So that's but kind of, that's only in this verse. Yeah, there yeah, is yeah. some verse more action three, in the Yeah, yeah. So let's get into verse. that. The third verse is, I have no merit to woo. It's <laughs> <laughs> such a funny word, isn't it? <laughs> it is. It makes me think of courtly love. I always just think of, it's a strange word because you just r- turn the M up or turn the W upside down and you've got moo. moo. <laughs> also, you don't typically woo with merit. I mean, if you're no. trying to woo a woman, for example, no. you don't say, well, have you read my pedigree? I yes. Come exactly. from good stock. I have no merit to woo or delight thee. I have no wisdom or powers to employ. Yet in thy mercy, how pleasing thou findst me. This is thy pleasure, that thou art my joy. One thing I just have to point out before we get into something substantial. You know, Piper's obviously camouflaging his words in the, you know, in the temporal and cultural context of the original psalm by using, like, powers and feinst, and, you know, thy and thine, which is fine. It would sound weird, I guess, if suddenly there were yous and 
Yeah, unless you, know? you made it abundantly clear that there were two authors, in which case you yeah. can easily identify the two, which yeah. wouldn't necessarily be offensive. No, not necessarily. And some versions of the some adaptations of the original hymn do change the these and the thous to use and that sort of thing. So there are some versions of this that say like great is your faithfulness. You're right. He is camouflaging this in these archaic uh in this archaic verbiage. And this may have already not may have. This would already have been archaic in the 1920s by the time this guy was writing this. But it's even more odd, you know, 90 years later to do the mm-hmm. same thing. Um and I think John Piper actually is more archaic than the original text. So, oh, really? Like in this, in this finds me. Yes. Or powers like yeah, these contractions. That sounds very like seventeenth uh, century almost or something. Yes, it's like Isaac Watts or yes, something. Yes, exactly. Um, the original, you know, had archaic things like endureth and thou yeah. and uh, thy and thine being different, um, but none of those really, uh, none of those really really archaic things like contracting powers to powers. Yeah. And, Findest to findst. So, Colin, what would you have to say about this verse? God has mercy upon the person, and in that mercy, God finds them pleasing. So, I guess it's actually not the case that God finds them and saves them. It's that he has saved them, and that makes him find the person that was saved pleasing. Yes, it's a different sense of finding, yes. right? To find versus to find pleasing or to find right. you know, displeasing. Because he's actually, the finding is happening chronologically after the mercy has been applied. Yeah, and this is demonstrated in the in the grammar too. The second verse is in the past tense and the third mm-hmm. verse is in the present tense. And so he's speaking about really his status now, even as a Christian, as one uh, who, um, in whom God delights. Mm-hmm. Incredible. Um, as having no merit yeah. himself or having no wisdom or powers. Yep. And you wonder how, I mean, I've heard Piper just speak a little bit about his own life and his own thoughts and his own struggles. And obviously Piper is very much a, a kind of Christian celebrity. So that brings its own set of temptations, which I think, you know, Piper, I've heard Piper discuss even that the temptations that come with that. And I just, I see a little bit of, of that in this. So if I imagine that if a person is as successful as Piper is, he is thinking, he is struggling a lot to remember that his merits, because he has many, uh, he is a very accomplished person, you know, who's written, I mean, desiring God is, is like a New York Times bestseller, I'm pretty sure. Or certainly it has sold many, many, many copies and been translated into many. I mean, it's a very influential book. Arguably one of the most influential Christian books in the last 50 years. Since I Kissed Dating Goodbye. <laughs> right. <laughs> Sorry. Although thankfully really. Piper is still a Christian. Um, <laughs> Christianity just didn't have the answers for things like why do good things happen to bad people? Blah, blah, blah. I don't know. Ironic. And that guy was a minister for many oh years, too. And you're like, what were you telling people? Yeah, what? Whatever. Things of things of Christ are foolishness to those who don't believe, even those who don't believe while in the pulpit, I suppose. I also find it really ironic that he comes away from a life 
maybe not coming away from a life because his life is still going on, but he came away from a period of intense Christian, um, presumably, well, maybe not presumably, he walked away from Christianity with the most generic objections that people have been yeah. talking about for millenn- actual yeah. millennia. Like actually, yeah, quite like um, sim- the problem know, of simple evil. and yeah, like <laughs> yeah. We're not talking about John Piper. So no, this we're is uh, about- Josh Harris. Yeah, we yeah. should say we should say that. Yes. Yeah, it's very very strange. But I guess again, it would this reinforces the idea that he was not saved in the first place because clearly, even as he was speaking words that probably could have answered his own questions. They weren't actually penetrating his heart. Hmm. Wild to, to think about that. Um, okay. I have no merit to woo or delight thee. I have no wisdom. And again, I think Piper would struggle with that. John Piper is a wise man, I think, in many respects. I mean, Desiring God is not written by somebody who's foolish. This is written by somebody who is very, very thoughtful. Even if a person doesn't agree with all of Desiring God and Christian hedonism, it's written by a very thoughtful person, clearly. And uh, so, again, I imagine that I imagine that a wise person would struggle with the impressiveness of their own wisdom, you know, as a thing that makes them better than other people or just, you know, m- closer to God, right, than, than somebody else. And so I just... It's just interesting what what Piper chooses to focus on here as the sorts of things that ultimately don't impress God, mm-hmm. and that's interesting. You know, he doesn't say like I have no athleticism or something like that. I don't. I mean, maybe John Piper's, you know, a strong swimmer or something. I don't know, but he doesn't pick that. Um, he picks. He picks. Ben, you know, he picks uh, uh, like talents of the mind, basically. Um, yet in thy mercy. How pleasing thou finds me. I really like this last line. This is thy pleasure, that thou art my joy. It is also a very Piper line. That is a very Christian hedonism line. God finds his pleasure in the fact that he is our pleasure. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, that is a kind of mission statement for, uh, for Christian hedonism. I don't think it's a wrong statement. I think I, I'm okay with this statement. I think it is true that God finds pleasure in the fact that we find pleasure in him. Mm-hmm. I do think that that brings him glory mm-hmm. and delight. It, I mean, it's hard to imagine that not bringing him pleasure. Well, we also have biblical warrant for it in Psalm 149. So if I read the first four verses of Psalm 149. Praise the Lord. Sing to the Lord a new song, his praise in the assembly of the godly. Let Israel be glad in his maker. Let the children of Zion rejoice in their king. Let them praise his name with dancing, making melody to him with the tambourine and lyre. For the Lord takes pleasure in his people. He adorns the humble with salvation. So you have this, you have three verses of the people praising God. Why do we praise God? Because the Lord actually takes pleasure in his people. Mm-hmm. And uh, in their praise. Yeah, of him. exactly. I mean, I think that's inferred in here. I mean, it, it, it seems reasonably clear that God delights in his people 
um, enjoying his his good gifts, enjoying his his law, mm-hmm. enjoying living in the life that he has has asked them to live in. Um, God, Christ at one point it talks about love as if you love me, um, you know, keep my commandments, those sorts of things. I mean, this is. Uh, I think this is something that we do see in Scripture, this idea that God does find pleasure in us finding pleasure in Him. Yeah. Colin, something else, and I'm speaking extemporaneously here because this thought has just occurred to me, and I think we need to address the first two lines of this verse. Mm Mm-hmm. And assess them on their own merit. So I okay. have no merit to woo or delight thee. I have no wisdom or powers to employ. Um, I think that what is being said here, correct me if I'm wrong, is I am unable in and of myself with my own faculties to earn your delight. There is nothing that I could do to merit your delight, God. Is that what's being said here? Or, or because the alternative could be um, something, you know, really what I consider even more Calvinist than um, Piper, something more like the Puritans, for example. Mm-hmm. There is no good in me whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Um, I have no merit I have no wisdom. I have no power. I ha- there is nothing in me that is um, even worth right. anything. So, so not just depraved in the sense of not being able to affect salvation, but being depraved in the sense of everything about me is bad. Yeah, and I've, I've heard total depravity be described as tainting every faculty or every every right. subset of the person without right. tainting them to the utmost yes. degree. There are different views of that first. Yes, and I wonder if what's being implied here is, and it, this could be John Piper's perspective on this, yeah. I am utterly, not just totally depraved in every you know facet of my being, but utterly depraved to the very end. Mm-hmm. What do you think is meant here? Can we know that? I don't know that, I don't know that we can. What seems to be the... We're looking. We have to look at what the purpose is of this depravity that he seems to be discussing. It's um, and maybe I'm going it, too far. It, by yeah, it depravity. so it's, it's at least poverty. Well, it's for the purpose of delighting God or to woo Him, right? To to charm Him, to yeah. to convince Him of something. So what we lack, what we're depraved in, is anything that would cause us to to, on our own, bring God to us in some way, right? To look at us, to woo us, to be wooed by us, to enjoy us, to be, you know. So, I don't know that we can say that he's saying, he's, I don't know that he's making a commentary so much on our being as he is simply on our ability to get God's favorable attention. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I don't know that we could say I, again. I don't actually know John Piper's perspective on that. This question of, de- of the extent of depravity. I don't know what his view is on this, sure. and I don't think we could know that from this, from these lines. Of 
we come to then the final verse in all versions of this hymn. Pardon for sin and a peace that endureth, thine own dear presence to cheer and to guide, strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow, blessings all mine with 10,000 beside. I really like this verse. Such a good verse. So we have pardon for sin. Just in those three words, we realize that our problem is sin. And we also know that we have received pardon for that sin. So there's a whole host of implications in here that we were guilty. We needed pardon. And we were guilty because of our sin. It wasn't just, again, wasn't felt needs. It wasn't that we were just in a dark place. We have sin. We received pardon for it. And then there are benefits that follow from the pardon. So we get a peace and a peace that endureth. And there's no quantifier on endureth or qualifier on endureth. This is just, it just is. It just endures. Mm -hmm. So the way that this is structured in terms of its grammar, it just simply leaves that open. Doesn't say endures until X. Sure. It's just, it endures, which implies forever. So that's nice. I really also like the fact that thine own dear presence will cheer and guide both today and it provides a hope for tomorrow. And this is a, this is interesting because what is the presence that is being discussed here? Is it Christ's presence? Is it God the Father's presence? Is it the Holy Spirit's presence? Is it some just abstract mystical presence? Well, I think uh, that this is a reference to God's presence, God's indwelling presence in the Holy Spirit. And Why do you think that? Well, um, so if we look at John uh, chapter 16, verses 7 through 15, this is what Jesus says about the presence of God. Of that, that will come after him, hit the way God's presence will be with believers after he goes. I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you, and when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, concerning sin because they do not believe in me, concerning righteousness because I go to the Father, and you will see me no longer." concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. And he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine, therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it. Uh, to you. So this is uh, God's presence that comes to the believer after he receives pardon for sin, um, but before the bright hope for tomorrow. So this is the presence of God in the Christian in this life, after salvation and before the um, we actually are in God's presence in eternity. This has to be the Holy Spirit. And it's neat because uh, as wonderful as Jesus's physical 
bodily presence was. And we imagine this as Christians, that, wow, what must it have been like to be in the very presence of God? And you just have to say, wait a second. Uh, (laughs) If what Jesus is saying in John chapter 16 is true, we have something better. Because, okay, we we would see Jesus's body um, in, in a sense of maybe this would, and this would provide some comfort in an empirical sense, like we can't see the Holy Spirit. So it would be nice to see Jesus, I suppose. But what a greater benefit it is to have God's actual presence inside us, mm-hmm. doing the things that Christ says that the Holy Spirit will do, uh, uh, speaking to us the words of Christ, um, convicting us of sin, um, revealing truth to us, glorifying Christ. Like the person of God, of the Godhead that does those things is in, is enduring within us. Mm-hmm. Um, it, that presence is within the Christian. So this is this is a crazy miraculous thing. Don't get me wrong. Um, walking around Judea with Jesus would have been pretty cool, but you can make the argument, and Jesus makes it that what we have in the Holy Spirit is um, is an even is an even greater thing. It's, it's, it's an absolutely wonderful thing that we receive in having the Holy Spirit. And we don't see it as miraculous because it's, it's become, it's just, it just is natural to us. Hmm. And so that we don't even notice its effects. Like every time we turn down sin, that's God's Spirit that has done that, mm-hmm. right? Every time we sing to God, every time we praise Him, and it's genuine praise, right? Every time we read God's word and we understand it. Like that that is a miraculous thing that's happened, but we don't actually see it as a miracle because it just happens all the time because we just have God's spirit within us. But it's it, that, that is actually bonkers. It's incredible to meditate upon the fact that the Holy Spirit one of the three persons of the Holy Trinity dwells within us yeah. bodily. And that we can experience communion directly with God, not only through prayer, but within. Well, even our prayers, our our groans, are interpreted by the Holy Spirit. Even that is yes. an as an as an act of the Holy Spirit. I mean, it's it's it's, it's really it's really insane mm-hmm. if you think about what is actually happening. Mm-hmm. It's the same way, from much lesser extent. It's like the same way if you think about breathing or like eyesight. If you if you meditate upon even just natural things, like I don't know the symbiotic relationship between a shark and like the fish that like swims around the shark and cleans it, like you start to really marvel when you actually think about what's happening. Like the Holy Spirit is like the the presence and indwelling of the Holy Spirit is shocking if you actually just think about what what is happening. And Jesus is trying to get us to do that in John chapter 16. He's he's explaining some of the things that the Holy Spirit is going to do after Jesus goes away. Mm-hmm. And so anyway, all of this is just to say in this song the the author of this hymn is reminding the Christian that God's own presence is cheering us, guiding us, giving us strength, giving us hope for the future, and 
These are all blessings. And he uses the reference to Amazing Grace 10,000, which just is a, a way to say innumerable, innumerable blessings. The Holy Spirit brings these innumerable blessings, past, present, or, you know, present and future bless, blessings um, that are just too numerous to count. And so he's, he's just kind of encapsulating a bit this marvelous idea of God's own presence as yet another benefit of his faithfulness to us. Even as Christ leaves, God is still faithful. God is even more faithful to send us his own presence. Mm-hmm. After, after Christ leaves in bodily presence, God then indwells his people with his very presence inside of them. Mm-hmm. Crazy. In fact, that presence which cheers and guides very well may be, in this author's mind, the, the very same strength for today yeah. to carry on. No, that's what I think is going on. Yeah. I think this is all describing the presence of God mm-hmm. through, in his Holy Spirit. Hmm. I took a slightly different interpretation of this. It's definitely not incompatible, but he compounds these blessings um, upon one another in these first three clauses, right? So pardon for sin and a peace that endureth. Thine own dear presence to cheer and to guide. Strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. So even if you don't think of those as necessarily connected, um, he's, he's stacking up a bunch of different, absolutely phenomenal blessings of God and then declares them all at the very end, blessings all mine. And then, and then there are 10,000 besides. Right. So an uncountably large yeah. number in addition to these things, some of which we're not, we don't even know yeah. of yet. He hasn't named, of a, named them and we don't even necessarily know what they are. Absolutely phenomenal yeah. to think about. Pretty cool. Colin, so after having looked at what's present, would you like to look briefly at what's absent? Yeah, so there's a verse that's omitted, which is, I mean, that's the way that I know the song. Yeah. Summer and winter and springtime and harvest, sun, moon, and stars in their courses above. Join with all nature in manifold witness to thy great faithfulness, mercy, and love. What do you think? Why has this been cut? Is it just because there were too many verses? Uh... I never liked this verse that much. Not that I don't think it's true. It is true. And it does echo some of the Psalms. It echoes, we've even looked at at hymns that talk about creation praising and kind of creation as evidence of God's uh, nature and goodness. It would be interesting if we think about when this would normally come. It would come after the verse which says, Thou changest not, thy compassions they fail not, as thou hast been, thou forever wilt be. And then, you know, for a farmer, how what is the best way that he can think about something being constant? Well, it's the rhythm of the year. It's summer, and then winter, and then the springtime, and then the harvest. Or like the course of the day, sun, moon, and stars in their courses above. So there's a kind of, he's almost saying, okay, I see in creation the the rhythms, a kind of unchanging rhythm. 
But then he also says that these uh, these rhythms and these courses of nature are themselves witness to the great faithfulness and the mercy and love of God. So th- mm-hmm. I think this is uh, obviously this is true. These are this is a true um, a true both a, both like a subjective both a subject these are this is these are statements that a person might make in a subjective sense like they might just say yeah i I was thinking about this and it made me think about god but these are also things that we see in scripture that yes that nature do you have references yes this is what i was thinking of psalm 119 um 89 to 91 i think maybe referred to here although implicitly not completely explicitly Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Your faithfulness endures to all generations. You have established the earth, and it stands fast. By your appointment, they stand this day, for all things are your servants. And so, it's not necessarily making reference to specific things, like the sun and the moon and the stars, but certainly the heavens is a reference to, you know, not just one heavenly body, but the vast array of them and the fact that they are um, organized and they follow certain trajectories through the mm-hmm. sky. And, you know, these are, we, we can orient and we do orient our lives around these things, yeah. uh, point us to his word, which yeah. is unfailing and fixed in the heavens. Yeah. So, so you, you can see how this kind of makes sense in the, in the song. So there is that. I do think that the song is perfectly fine without it. I don't think that it necessarily I I don't know. I don't know that it does much that I, I don't know. I, the song is okay without it. And I also think that what's brought in in place of it changes the song is the, the new verses are slightly confusing in a couple of different ways or slightly um contrived is too strong of a word, but they're a little contrived mm-hmm. once you realize that Piper's written them. They there's a little bit just a little bit too much uh Piperism in there maybe. But you know, so so I'm kind of neutral on the change. Like on the one hand this this verse is is, is true, but I don't know. It it it's not adding a bunch in my view. Whereas the Piper verses are also, for the most part, true, mostly clear, but slightly, I, I don't know. I, I don't know. I guess I, I, don't, I don't have a particularly strong view on this. Do you, do you have a more firm view on the omission of this verse? Either way. I have two. One is less important than the other. The first is just because it's a traditional hymn, and everyone knows this verse and expects this verse to come. Omitting it is a deliberate action in some ways. Now, tradition is not the most important thing when we're talking about what we're going to sing. I do think, secondly, that including the heavens in a verse— to discuss or praise God's faithfulness um, gives a further context for the idea that his mercies are new every morning. 
because the morning itself is the sun coming over the horizon. So I think it cuts off some of that. And also this verse only, this is the only verse in the original text that mentioned God's love at all. And so we've now cut that out. Um, Are these game changers, deal breakers? No, but I think it's worth considering. So Colin, all that being said, tell me, would you endorse this song? The Piper version, I mean, probably, yeah. It's not like the strongest endorsement, but I'm okay with it. It's, it's Is good. it the weakest endorsement? No, it's not the weakest endorsement, <laughs> but it's 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 a, it's a, it's all right. Yeah, it's all right. What about you? I. <laughs> <laughs> I wish we look. I I like Piper. I agree with him on a lot theologically. It's not that I am objecting to this uh, theology that's in here um, necessarily. It's he really did some things to the clarity of this song. I think yeah. so significantly. Let me let me speak clearly. Looking past all the archaisms that he has in the text, um, he took a song that was about God's faithfulness and made it about desire. Right about our desire for yeah. God and about His desire for us and how that's a joy to God. Yeah. Now, I'm not saying that's unscriptural sure. or unbiblical, but it's 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 very different. Yeah. And so we had we originally had a a song that illustrate it kind of riffed on the idea. It was a rhapsody on faithfulness, mm-hmm. um, if you will. And what we have now is a beginning and an end and a refrain that are about God's faithfulness and mercy. Um, we've cut the one about love, and as you know, Colin, um, steadfast love in you know Hebrew was one word yeah. that gets translated as mercy or steadfast love all the time in different ways. Which is in the verse that the original hymn is partly based off in Lamentations. Right, exactly. And so that's gone, that verse that mentioned love is gone. Um, the um, inserted verses do mention mercy but the cut verse um i think contained that union of faithfulness mercy and love so um i am going to give this the weakest endorsement i have given a song yet i think i there is nothing in it that is reprehensible at all nothing but it's just it's like um i you know like someone Someone built a, you know, Rube Goldberg machine out of Legos, and it took them six months, and they can't wait to show you. And it's amazing. That's impressive. <laughs> Why? <laughs> Why did you do that? <laughs> That's kind of how I feel about this. It's like it's John yeah. Piper. I get it. It's you're, yeah. you've got a really interesting idea here. Why? So, um, yes, I endorse it. It is my weakest endorsement. I think. Okay. Um, yeah. A pithy way of saying it, I don't mind what has been added, and I don't dislike the cut that has been made, but in an attempt to describe a monergistic salvation, it ultimately ends up sounding like an accidental salvation, because it's without warning, without desire, without anything, suddenly I like this, and ironically, a shift from praising God's faithfulness to reflecting on desire. So, yeah. Colin, what'd you give this song? I gave this song four out of five public domains. 
because John Piper can alter it now because it's in the public domain? Yeah. So the song went into the public domain in 2018. Really? Exactly when John Piper modified it. Now, once a song goes into public domain, it is obviously free to be used in a variety of different ways. And it is also possible to use parts of the song in such a way that they make a new song. And if that happens, those parts can be re-copyrighted. Because copyright, if you can copyright something, it gives you a monopoly on it, right? So then suddenly people can't use great as thy faithfulness. I should maybe say that's why this is important. It would allow somebody to basically take great as thy faithfulness and build fences around it and charge admission to be able to get in to sing or use great as thy faithfulness. What I found interesting is hearing John Piper talk about the, or hearing um, one of the, um, one of the Austin Stone worship people who performed this talk about this song. So they perform it at this Gospel Coalition conference. And then the way that this guy says it, it was just there was a spontaneous interest in it. And oddly, they seemed very prepared with, again, sheet music, a variety of... um, It's almost like they kind of expected it to cause a bit of a stir and to be of interest financially. And because it's probably not the appropriate time to go into a bunch of stuff on this, but... The Gospel Coalition was, at this time, maybe slightly before this, really ramping up the conferences, book sales, variety other of other financial aspects, commercial, I should say, commercial aspects to their operation. And so this is what Aaron Ivey, who is sort of a, a, a leader in the Austin Stone worship group had to say between emails direct messages and tweets thousands um, of requests is what he's saying i started coming for the words and the song and all that sort of thing people started asking for a recording uh and then um then he says this the new lyrics made the song a brand new song my hope in talking about where this came from is that worship leaders and pastors see the benefit of collaborating together. We were able to be better worship leaders in that moment because Dr. Piper invited us in. Um, Again, he may have just been speaking off the cuff and said, this made the song a brand new song. But that term also has legal implications. Like that is the perfect statement to say from a legal perspective, if you were going to make the justification for a copyright mm-hmm. on Great Is Thy Faithfulness, basically like taking over that song. Now, as I've said, it doesn't appear to me that this actually happened, mm. um, that, that, that the copyright was taken over. But nevertheless, it's just a, I don't know, it's just an interesting set of implications about the kind of commercial side, which we do talk about from time to time on this podcast, the sort of commercial side of redoing hymns. Could we call it Faithful Gate? Your theory, maybe. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> hmm. What about you? What about you, Tyler? Uh, what did you give the song? Colin, I was kind of torn on this one between three and four. Okay. Um, because traditionally, for for listeners who aren't familiar with this, 
there's a binary system, yes or no on endorsement, and then a scalar system, one to five on rating. And um, we tried to keep it quite objective. Something rubs me the wrong way about it, and I don't, I don't know what it is. And mm-hmm. um, so, on the one hand, I'm inclined to give it a three, but I think that would be um, maybe a little disingenuous of me if I were going to try and uphold the scale of one to five as being of any objective value at sure. all. So, because this seems better than some of the songs that you've given threes to. Yeah, definitely. So I give this song four out of five impromptu directions on what to think about. <laughs> because two-thirds of the way through the song, the lead singer tells you what to think about as you sing the next verse. Fair enough. Think about this. As we sing this, he's pardoned us. He's given us an everlasting peace. We're thankful for that. Let's thank him together. Colin, never mind. (laughs) This has been the Worship Review. Thank you again for tuning in and uh, listening each week and leaving good reviews on the listening platforms that you use. Feel free to send us emails, follow us on Twitter, retweet us sometimes if it's good, and we hope to catch you on the next one. Take care. You've been listening to The Worship Review. Please subscribe to the podcast, leave a comment, or email us at feedback at theworshipreview.com. We accept donations at anchor.fm slash theworshipreview and patreon.com slash theworshipreview. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.